0: Good morning, church family. How we doing? It's good to be with you all. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in the middle of this Encountering Jesus summer series. And our prayer over this whole series is that you would walk away with a greater allegiance to Jesus and affection for Jesus. And the prayer is that you and I, that we would actually encounter the living God. As we actually come here, we would actually encounter the living God. And we would do that through his living word today. And so that's not just going to happen. We don't want to just come here and hear a guy talk and sing some songs. We want to actually encounter God. So would you join me? Let's pray and let's ask God to encounter us in this space. Jesus, thank you that, you, uh, that your word is alive, that it's living and active, that it shapes us, that it forms us. Lord, I pray that you would speak just through uh, the words I feel like you have led me uh, this morning. And Lord, I pray that as we look at uh, this text, that we would leave here changed, Lord, with indeed a greater allegiance to you and affection for you. Holy Spirit, guide my words. Um, I don't come here thinking I've got this all figured out. Uh, I just pray that you would use me uh, in many ways in spite of me. And so, uh, Lord, we thank you. We love you. uh, Not because we're awesome, but because you are. And so, Jesus, use this time. In your name we pray. Amen. So church, I have a question for us. And the question is, uh, just to kick us off, what is the greatest movie sequel of all time? What's the greatest movie sequel of all time? And as, as a parent to young kids, I can tell you what it's not. I can tell you what it's not. There's a lot of bad kids' movies, right? And then they they think about with sequels, and it's like, really? My kid, I have a four-year-old son, and he loves Cars. I can tell you, Cars 2 is not the greatest movie sequel of all time. And there's like, got some classics, like Aladdin, Lion King. The sequels are horrible, right? Like, it's hard to make a good sequel. Uh, I was actually, you might not know this about me, I was actually a film uh, student in college. I wanted to be a movie critic, actually, before uh, the Lord called me into ministry. So I'm passionate about film, uh, passionate about movies, and I would say there are, there are, probably three movies in the running when it comes to that like, greatest sequel of all time. You have Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, you've got uh, arguably maybe the greatest sequel of all time, Godfather Part II, uh, and then for my money, the, the greatest movie sequel of all time is Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, right? <laughs> I, I knew you we were going to have, we're, we're in Intel land of some engineers, I know y'all watching Star Wars. <laughs> But here's the deal. We love this movie, right? Because it, as, the movie su- as the title suggests, we get to see the full power of the Empire, right? We see Darth Vader just wrecking fools out there. We see it's just an amazing movie. You, have, you know, Hoth, you've got, you know, Cloud City. You get introduced to some ama- amazing characters. We get the most iconic line maybe in cinema with Luke, I am your father, right? Like the greatest twist ever. And if you're like, wait, what? You've had like 50 years to watch this movie. So <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Uh You've had a long time to get caught up. But part of the reason we love the Empire Strikes Back is we are introduced to maybe the greatest Star Wars character ever, and that is Master Yoda, right? And the way we're introduced is Luke Skywalker, he has to go to Dagobah to finish his training, to complete his training with... Master Yoda, and so he gets there, right? And he crashes into the swamp, and he uh, he's he's all flustered and upset. You know, he's with R2D2, and he's there. And uh, this little creature walks up to him. That's two foot nothing, like two thousand years old looking, right? And, And he's he's being all goofy, and he's he's taking a stick, and he's banging on the droids. He's digging through his food, all that. And Luke's getting really annoyed, and he says, like, you know, I'm here to look for a great warrior. Like, get out of here. You can't help me. And he's thinking you clearly cannot help me find the person I'm looking for. You clearly have nothing to offer me. You clearly are not the one I'm looking for. And the irony is, right, that as Luke is looking for Master Yoda, the greatest Jedi Master of all, he himself is standing right before him. As he's, as he's uh, annoyed that this creature is before him, he doesn't realize this creature is actually the one he's looking for. And what we see here in that, in that, you know, in that classic movie is that Luke does not see Yoda rightly. And today we're going to be looking at an ironic, upside-down, unexpected, unorthodox king and kingdom. Today we're going to be looking at Jesus before Pontius Pilate. We're going to look at this encounter, and it's going to be kind of like that scene. It's going to be bursting with irony, but also tension. And the question we're going to have before us today is, who is this king? Who is this king? And what we're going to see is Pilate doesn't see him rightly. The priests are not gonna see him rightly and the people are not gonna see him rightly. But the question that will hang over this is will you and I see him rightly today? Will you and I see Jesus rightly today? And what we're going to look at today is going to be a courtroom drama. Jesus is on trial, and the question is, who is this king? We've got a lot to cover this morning. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 28. I've got three points for us, three movements for us to cover. And the first one, as we look at who is the king, number one, he is a king whose kingdom is not of this world. Read with me John 18, verses 28 to 32. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas, that's the Jewish high priest, to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If you were not a criminal, they replied, we would not be handing him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. And this took, pl- took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. So before we get into the weeds, uh, we've got to ask, how did Jesus end up in this situation? Like, why is Jesus on trial to begin with? Well, John, the author of this gospel account, uh, he tells us that the Jewish leaders, uh, earlier in his account, he says that they're seeking to kill Jesus for blasphemy. They're looking to kill him for blasphemy because Jesus claims to be God. He claims to be the Son of God. He claims that he is equal with God. And they say this is blasphemous. Again, they don't see Jesus rightly. They say this is blasphemy to make yourself equal with God. But then also the Jews are jealous of Jesus and they're concerned that people are going to follow Jesus instead of them. They're afraid they're going to lose their power. But the problem is they can't execute capital punishment. These Jewish leaders, they can't do that because they're under Roman occupation. They're under Roman occupation. They can't, they cannot execute Jesus. So they set up a plan. They recruit Judas to betray Jesus. We saw this last week where Steve did such a great job. Uh, That was fun to get all those text in, responses and all that last week. If you don't know what I'm talking about, watch last week. But we see the plan of Judas to betray Jesus. We see that they recruit him to do that. They arrest Jesus and then they bring Jesus to Pilate. That's how we get here right now. And we see this playing out in our text. We see that the Jewish leaders need Pilate to execute their plan, to execute Jesus. So that's one reason that Jesus ends up on trial, right? But there's another reason. And verse 32 gives us uh, a hint here. Verse 32, it says, This took place, all that's happening, to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. See, Jesus is on trial because he has set his face to the cross. Jesus is only here because Jesus has set out to be here. See, Jesus himself said that he would die on the cross. Jesus set his face here. And as we're going to see throughout this whole passage, ironically, the one who is on trial is the one who is in control. The one who is on trial, the one who seems like he is captive, is actually the one who is in control. Jesus is in total control. Jesus says plainly earlier in this famous passage, he says, no one takes my own life from me. I lay it down by my own authority. Jesus says, no one takes my life. No one's taking his life here. He lays it down by his own authority. My friend and author Josh Butler says, the cross is not happening to Jesus. Jesus is happening to the cross. Jesus is in control. See, before the creation of the world, this was the plan. So we have this great irony happening here. But that's not the only irony happening in this situation, in this section. And again, this is going to be a text bursting with irony. If you're taking notes, you can take a bunch of these down. See, another irony is the Jewish leaders, they won't enter into Pilate's palace. Notice what it says. It says Pilate has to come out to them. Well, why? Well, they want to remain ceremonially clean. and If they enter into a Gentile's house, they won't be, and then they won't be able to partake of the Passover feast. See, the priests, they don't want to be unclean for God. They want to honor God, but instead they're going to murder God. The irony here is thick. They want to honor God for Passover, not realizing the God of the Passover is standing right before them. Keep reading verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus asked, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Pilate replied, am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus said, here's our point, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. See, Pilate, he's asking our question, what kind of king are you, Jesus? And Jesus says a paradigm-shifting statement about his kingship and about his kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, if if it were, my people would be fighting this. My people would be doing something about this. And we've got to be clear as we look at this. What's happening here is not Jesus coming to Pilate and saying, hey, Pilate, don't worry. Yeah, I'm no threat to you. My kingdom's not of this world. You don't need to worry about me. I'm no threat to you, Pilate. That's not what's happening. What Jesus is saying to Pilate is you are no threat to me. He's saying, you are no threat to me and my kingdom because Jesus is the king. Again, he is in control. He's Lord over all. And his kingdom is not of this world. And actually, this is really good news for you and for me. The question is how? Like, how is this kingdom not of this world actually good news? Well, first, Jesus' kingdom is unlike any earthly power. It's unlike any empire, any regime. See, this kingdom is not of this world. Every single earthly kingdom will fade. Every empire will end. But Jesus' kingdom is eternal. Every single earthly empire is bound by time. But Jesus' kingdom is timeless. See, you and I, we could, we could, this afternoon, go get on a flight, head to Rome. You know, we, we can go there. We can go see the Colosseum. We can go see the ruins, right? We can go put on our fanny packs, look like tourists. We can go get some gelato. You know, we can go double up on some Vespas and have a good old time, right? For some of us, going to be a really uncomfortable Vespa ride, right? And go get some pasta in Rome. We can go with the Hakims and go see the pyramids in Egypt, right? Like, we can go do this. I, I, I've seen Rachel's pictures. You've got the pyramids there. It's amazing. Get in the hot air balloon. They do some amazing trips trips out there. We can go see the ruins of Rome. We can go see the pyramids of Egypt. And you can also go into a million churches all over the globe still worshiping Jesus today. See, Rome is a museum, but the church is alive. Rome is a museum, but the church is still alive and well today. And here's the thing. Washington, D.C. may very well one day be a museum. But the church will still be alive and well. The church will still be alive and well. Jesus' kingdom not being of this world mean that the weapons and plans of this world will not advance this kingdom. The politician's pitch, human strength, mankind's resources, none of that's going to advance God's kingdom. No, this kingdom will advance by the power of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The weapons of this kingdom are not missiles, they're not nukes, they're not tanks, but the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The tools of this kingdom are prayer, bread and cup, waters of baptism. These are the tools of the kingdom. And here's the deal, some of us have been told a lie. We've been told a lie that Jesus kingdom, it needs that candidate if that candidate doesn't get in, in that position of power, well, then the kingdom of God is just going to fall by the wayside. Or, oh, goodness, if that person gets in office, well, then the, ki- the kingdom of God is just going to completely erode. We need that agenda to get passed. We need those people in power for the kingdom of God to grow. Or we need to prevent those things from happening. And we want to say, no, the kingdom of God, Jesus' kingdom does not need Rome. It does not need Babylon. It does not need Egypt. And it does not need America. Because his kingdom is not of this World. And I think we need to hear this in our cultural moment. Good news, his kingdom breaks into our world, though. It is a a kingdom for our world. It is good news in our world, but his kingdom is not of this world, which means no earthly means will bring it to fruition. See, church, we are not culture warriors for Jesus. We're not culture warriors for Jesus. We are spirit-filled followers of Jesus, who as we talked about last week, we are called to wash the feet of the world. That's what i to say, no matter what's ahead, this is good news, the kingdom of God not being of this world, no matter what's ahead, whether persecutions or pandemics, the kingdom of God will endure. It will prevail and it will grow because this kingdom is not of this world. Nothing in this world can stop it for Jesus has overcome the world. Amen? And this kingdom is not of this world, for it is true. Let's keep reading. Verse 37. Pilate said, You are a king then. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate retorted, What is truth? What is truth? This question is such a question for our cultural moment. What is truth? What is authority? What is right and wrong? What is truth? And see, our world has decided that truth is relative. We live in a a context where postmodernism reigns, especially in a place like Portland. And we could say a lot of things that are good, true, and beautiful about Portland. There's many, many things, but this would not be one of them. There are many things about uh, our, our, our context that we live in that we'd say, yes, we agree with that, but this would not be one of those things. This would not be one of those things. We live in a world of live your truth, and there's no absolute truth, which we just have to pause and say, if you say there is no such thing as absolute truth, that is an absolute truth claim. Like, and I'm not trying to do like an I gotcha we just have to, like, be intellectually honest here and say, if you're saying, like, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Well, you're saying that absolutely. Like, and there's just a sense. Again, I'm not saying it to, like, be condescending or an I gotcha. It's just I want us to think critically about these things. And the question is, what is truth? And for us as believers and followers of Jesus, what Jesus is saying here is, is radical. We just sang about it. The truth is not just some series of dogmas and doctrines that we get to beat over the head with people. Truth, foundationally and fundamentally, is a person. What is the truth? The truth is Jesus. The truth is a person, Jesus. We're just saying about, I am the truth, right? We find another irony here. And it's the irony of Pilate asking, what is truth before truth incarnate? We see Pilate asking, "What, what is truth? Not realizing the one who says, I am the truth, stands right before him. What is truth? Pilate, he's standing right in front of you. And I want to say, to the jaded, to the skeptical, to the unconvinced, one, I'm glad you're here. And two, we all have to recognize we're all trusting someone or something for truth. None of us come into this place like, Neutral and objective to this. We're all following someone to lead us into the truth. We're all submitting to someone's authority for the truth. We're all living out of some truth claim. The reality is you're just making yourself or someone else other than Jesus your basis for the truth. And I think we need to hear this. You, me, that blog, that podcast, that account, the social media influencer, They don't know more than Jesus. They don't have a a more access to the truth than Jesus because he is the truth. And Jesus says he is the truth that sets you free. And Jesus says everyone who is on the side of truth listens to my voice. These are the words of Jesus. And here's the thing about Jesus though. Jesus doesn't just declare that he's the truth over us. You can find a million people that will declare truths That's not unique. What is unique about Jesus is he doesn't just declare truth over you. He also dies for you. He's not just the truth that sets you free. He is the truth that dies in your place. So who is this king, right? That's that's the question we're wrestling with. Who is this king that's on trial? Number one, he's a king whose kingdom is not of this world. And number two, he is a king who delivers the greatest exchange. Pick it back with, with me, the second half of verse 38. With this, Pilate went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release to you this king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising, and that word uh, "uprising" it, it actually in the original language is an insurrection. You should picture Pilate being this really a, a political radical. You know, it's really a political terrorist. Is really what you should picture when you picture Barabbas. It uh, was part of an insurrection. And see, Pilate finds no basis to accuse Jesus, but he seeks to appease the crowd, offering to release a prisoner. And we have to be honest here: this is an affront to justice. This is not right. Uh, Pilate is abdicating his responsibilities as a a, a gatekeeper of justice. This is not just. You could say this is the most unjust uh, situation in the history of the world. Jesus, the innocent one, being condemned. And he asked the crowd, do you want Barabbas or Jesus? And the crowd chooses Barabbas. And the innocent is accused while the guilty is set free. The rebel is pardoned while the king is condemned. Jesus is exchanged for Barabbas. And these couple verses, as we look at here, are a picture of the very gospel itself. Because the reality is, we are all Barabbas. We are all Barabbas. And I can say that because we have all sinned and rightly stand guilty. But Jesus exchanges himself for us, he takes our place, and he died the death that we should have died. See, all that is mine, Jesus takes on to himself. See, all that is mine, Jesus takes on to him. And all that is his, he freely gives to me. The great exchange indeed. See, Jesus takes all of my sin and gives me all of his righteousness. Jesus takes all of my failure and gives me all of his perfection. Jesus, in this great exchange, takes all that I deserve and gives me all that he deserves. Jesus is the king of the great exchange, But this exchange, it's not just Barabbas for Jesus. It's you, it's me, it is us. See, Jesus was condemned before Pilate so that we could be found innocent before the Father. And some of you guys are like, yeah, we've heard you say this before. Uh, The church, what we come here to do, we're like a a one-hit wonder band. We got one song and we sing it loud. (laughs) And it's that Jesus is alive. He died in our place for our sin. He is innocent. We were condemned and he exchanges himself for us. You're gonna hear this song over and over and over again. But it's good news so we don't get sick of it, right? Another irony here is that the Jews chose Barabbas, whose name literally means son of the father. Barabbas' name literally means son of the father. And the irony is they choose uh, that man while they reject Jesus, the true son of the true father. And the good news is that because of Jesus' exchange, we can now become true sons and daughters of God. See, Jesus' accusation is our acceptance. Jesus' rejection is our adoption. Jesus' death is our life. And you and me, our world, we are dying for this story. We're dying for this story. We long for this story about a king, about an innocent one, about a, a, a hero who would die for the world. We long for this. We long for the great exchange. How do I know? Because we can't stop telling this story. We literally cannot stop telling this story. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, that same Josh Butler, uh, he was reflecting on it and he was saying, See, the true story of the world, this true story of Jesus, is echoed through. All the great Hollywood epics, all the great uh, uh, big books that we would follow, all these epic stories are just plagiarism of Jesus. <laughs> this is what's going on here. It's just plagiarism of Jesus. I hope Jesus is getting some royalties right on this thing. Like, just straight up plagiarizing Jesus. What's going on? What do I mean? Picture with me. A Quiet Place, right? One of the like most all-time movie experiences, like just silent in there. And John Krasinski's character. Again, what we're going to see here is that the great exchange is something that our world is dying to tell this story. John Krasinski's character in A Quiet Place, he screams and he calls down the wrath of the monsters on himself so that his family can go free, right? He calls on the wrath of these monsters on himself so that, so that his family can survive. This story has echoed through Harry Potter. The true story of the world is echoed through Harry Potter who stands up to Voldemort. The Lord, his name literally means Lord of Death. And he dies, Harry Potter dies to destroy the powers of darkness in the world, it's Aslan sacrificing himself to defeat the White Witch and rid the world of her endless curse. It's Gandalf laying down his life at the bridge of Khazad-dûm. I know you know what I'm talking about. With the Balrog so his friends can live. Right? He says, fly, you fools. Right? He's dying so his friends can live. It's Iron Man and the Infinity Stones. You all saw the movie. I see the box office scores. It's the highest grossing movie of all time. You were there. I was there. We waited like 15 years for this movie, Right? It's it's Iron Man getting the Infinity Stones from Thanos, whose name literally means death. And the only way to save the world is what? A snap, where Tony Stark dies and the world lives. A great exchange. Parents, kids if you're in here, it's Bing Bong from Inside Out, right? You know what I'm talking about. Who's your friend who likes to play bing bong, bing bong, who sacrifices himself so that joy can take Riley to the moon? I'm not crying. You're crying. You were weeping when you heard that. You know what I'm talking about. Indeed, we long for a king. We long for a hero who will exchange himself for us, who will defeat evil, and he'll defeat death, and he'll defeat sin, and he'll defeat loss, He'll put darkness in the grave. He'll end the curse. And the good news is, Jesus actually did it. Iron Man is a fun story. Jesus really did it. And he did it because he loves you, he did it because he's that good. And the question today is will you receive his exchange? Will you receive the great exchange from Jesus? Will we see him rightly today? The question we have here is, who is this king? So one, he is a king whose kingdom is not of this world. Number two, he is a king who delivers the great exchange. But number three, he is a king who is greater than Caesar. Chapter 19, verse 1. Pick it up with me. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. When the Jews came out, when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is The man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officers saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. The movie references are fun, right? Like I was looking forward to leading through that part of this message. But the story gets really dark here. Like the story gets real dark here. This entire section, what we just read, is Rome making a mockery of Jesus. They're making a mockery of his royalty, a mockery of his kingdom. Jesus is presented here as a pathetic joke of Caesar. Just a pathetic joke. As the soldiers mock Jesus saying, hail the king. The irony is, as they say this, they have actually never said anything more real in their life. The irony is, as the soldiers mock Jesus They've never said anything more true in their whole life. See, as Pilate says, look at this bloody, defeated, sorry excuse of a king. Behold the man. The irony is this bleeding man of seeming weakness is actually the God of all power. The irony is, see the soldiers, they gave Jesus a robe to mock him. Oh, you're you're a king, huh? Throw over a purple robe on him. The irony is one day every knee will bow before the glorious majesty and splendor of Jesus and every tongue will indeed confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King. The irony is that the soldiers made him a crown of thorns to mock Jesus, but they didn't realize they made him a symbol of power greater than any crown could ever communicate. See, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin in the Garden of Eden, when they sin. God curses the ground with thorns. And here in John 19, Jesus wears a crown of thorns. See, Jesus defeats the curse by bearing it himself. Jesus triumphs over the curse through his death. See, Jesus is the greater Adam. He is the true son of God. He is the king of kings who stood firm in temptation he did not give in to Satan and evil. And he will one day liberate his people and his world from the curse of the first Adam. All hail King Jesus. Amen? See, the irony is just thick in this passage. But back to our text, we have... More courtroom, back and forth. The religious leaders, they keep ramping up the charges and Pilate keeps questioning Jesus. At one point, Pilate even says, Jesus, don't you realize I have the power to set you free or kill you? Don't you realize I have the power to crucify you or set you free? More irony. As Pilate thinks he holds Jesus' life in his hands, not realizing that Jesus is the life. Pilate thinks he's in control. But Jesus is the one who has control over all things. And all of this is according to the plan of God. John 19, 12 to 16. The last verses we're going to look at here this morning. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought out Jesus and sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. And Pilate said to the Jews, Here is your king. But they shouted, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Pilate asked, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And what we see in this section is all the characters, all the people, they have a choice. Will they choose Jesus or will they choose Caesar? Will their allegiance be to Jesus or will it be to Caesar? See, the Jewish leaders, they pull out their final card and they make Pilate choose. They say, yes, this man claims to be a king. And anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate, if you don't end this King Jesus... You are no friend of Caesar. They back Pilate into a corner here. They trap him. But Pilate also forces the Jews to make a declaration of their allegiance. Will they choose Jesus or will they choose Caesar? And shockingly, blasphemously, we, we should gasp when they read this. The Jews don't just reject Jesus. That part's obviously not uh, surprising. But they say, we have no king but Caesar. It is shocking. They are abandoning their heritage. They're abandoning their faith. They're abandoning their history and their God, who says that He is their ultimate king. And they say, We have no king but Caesar. See, Pilate and the priests, they make their decision, they choose Caesar. And so Jesus is delivered to be crucified. But that same question, it's like, it's like John is turning the camera around back at the audience. He's saying, Pilate chose Caesar. The Jewish leaders chose Caesar. But what about you? That same question hangs over all of us. Who will you choose, Jesus or Caesar? Jesus or Caesar. But we gotta be honest, like 2,000 years later, later that Jesus or Caesar doesn't quite have the same like, tension to it, right? Because like Caesar to us is not what Caesar was back then. To us, Caesar, he's a salad, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> Caesar, he's a, he's a bad pizza chain. Like, he's a sports book casino in Vegas. Like, he's a joke costume on Halloween. Like, we don't quite feel the tension. Like, gonna choose Jesus or Caesar? It's like, Jesus? Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, so the question is like, who's Caesar today? Like, who is he today? we got to ask the question, what offers you today what Caesar offered to Rome back then? Like who's offering what Caesar once offered? Who is Caesar? Well, Caesar today is anything or anyone that demands your allegiance to their agenda. Who demands your uncompromising and unflinching allegiance to their agenda. See, it's, it's what are you hoping in? What are you trusting in? What are you looking for for life and hope? And I'd say maybe most of all, it's what do you look for for safety and security? There's this other exchange happening. Caesar says, Give me your allegiance, and I'll give you security and safety. Who is this for us, right? And for some of us, it, it could be politics. Our world worships and trusts the left and the right. I mean, you turn on cable news for 30 seconds, you would think that Christ incarnate is coming in this candidate. Like, I mean, it's just, uh, my goodness, if you vote for this person, the kingdom of God is going to come. Utopia will be ushered in if our agenda is passed. Or, goodness, if you vote for this person, you, know, you might as well be voting for the devil. You know, it's just like, the st- it's just wild. Like, we see worship happening. That might be our Caesar. Or it could be comfort. Which I think in, in our day, in our time, in our place, uh, a friend of mine, Jim Mullen, said, uh, comfort is not just an idol, he's a king. And it's king comfort, <laughs> which is an appropriate uh, title for our day. That king comfort demands our time. He demands our attention. He demands our scrolling. He demands our sacrifice. And king comfort does something quite insidious. King Comfort says, "I'll put you on the throne." He says, "I'll put you on the throne." All of life is about living the most comfortable, safe, easy life possible. See, King Comfort—he's like this—he's uh, like this bigger and badder cousin to the American Dream, right? King Comfort offers you a world of pillows, of Doordash, of streaming of nice parks, of good schools, and of nice vacations. And if we're really honest, that sounds pretty good. Like King Comfort has this inversion where Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. And King Comfort says, I got a couch and some Netflix. I got some nice PTO. I got some good vacation for us. I think we got to be honest, for many of us, myself included, I'm not standing above any of y'all. For many of us in our more suburban, affluent area, King Comfort's our Caesar. So the question is, who are we going to surrender to? Whose agenda is going to run our life? Who's going to sit on the throne of our priorities? Will it be Jesus or will it be Caesar? Whose vision of life will we submit to? Jesus, whose way is sacrificial love? Or King Comfort, whose way is ease? Who will we surrender to, Jesus or Caesar? I I, I think part of my job, you've heard me say this up here many times, part of my job is to present the truth and and get rid of the house of mirrors that distort things, but help us to see an accurate reflection of our world, of Jesus and of ourselves. And here's the accurate thing about Caesar. Here's the truth about Caesar. They won't lead to life because they won't die for you. Caesar will not die. Die for you. See, this section, it ends with Jesus on the cross sacrificing for you. And it's something the left, the right, comfort. No Caesar will ever do that for you. Jesus ends this section by dying. And that does lead to one thing that Jesus and Caesar do have in common. They both died. Jesus and Caesar, they both died. But Caesar is a memory today. And Jesus is worship today. And that is because there is one very important distinction between Jesus and Caesar. They both died, but Caesar's still in the grave. And Jesus is alive and well, ruling and reigning today. Amen? See, Caesar's, they not only won't die for you, they're going to stay in the grave. They ain't going to rise again either. Like, Caesar's still dead. Jesus is alive. And the greatest irony of all, as Jesus goes to the cross, is that his seeming defeat is actually his greatest victory. See, Jesus's death leads to our life and the life of the world because Jesus is alive. Amen? Jesus is alive. Caesar's in the grave. Jesus is on the throne. So in closing church what am i asking us to do? What am i asking us to do? I'm asking us to have a greater affection for Jesus than comfort. That we'd have a greater affection for Jesus than comfort. That we would love Jesus more than we would love the comfort that it has to offer us. What am i asking us to do? I'm asking us to have a greater allegiance to Jesus than to Caesar. That when Jesus presents to us that his way of sacrificial love is the way we are called to walk, that we choose to walk in it no matter what comfort offers us, no matter what Caesar declares to us, no matter what hot water we get put into when we go against the way of the world, when we go against the way of Jesus, or when we go the way of Caesar with the way of Jesus, I'm asking us to declare our allegiance and our affection to Jesus. And I started by saying the entire goal of the series is that we would increase our affection for Jesus, and our allegiance to Jesus. But to do this, we got to know who our king is. We got to know who he is. We got to know what he has done for us. And friends, my prayer here is that we would be moved by the sacrifice of Jesus. That we would be melted and moved by it. And that sacrifice would lead to a greater allegiance to the king. Would we see his not-of-this-world eternal kingdom as more beautiful and better than anything this world has to offer? Would we see Jesus and his truth and his authority as good news and we would bend a knee to no other? Would we declare that we indeed have no other king but Jesus? Would we pledge our allegiance to Jesus, not Caesar, not comfort, not any other? So church, who is this king? He is good. He is true. And he died and he rose again. And so we say as the people of God, as followers of Jesus, in one unified voice we say, all hail King Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that your kingdom is not of this world, that nothing in this world can shake it Nothing in this world can challenge it. Nothing in this world can stop it. We thank you, Jesus, that you led the greatest exchange, that you substituted yourself for us, that your rejection is our acceptance, that your death is our life. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are greater than Caesar. And we say that we serve no other, we have no other king, but Jesus who is Lord of all. Every other empire will end but your kingdom is eternal, Jesus. Every other ruler will one day be dead in the grave, but Jesus, you died and rose again, and you're on the throne. And so my prayer is for us today, my prayer to you, God, today, is that we would be a people whose affection is for Jesus and whose allegiance is to Jesus. Lord, we failed in a million different ways to do this. We're tempted to put comfort on the throne of our life. We're tempted to put any Caesar on the throne of our life. We thank you for your mercy and grace when we do that. But Holy Spirit, we pray for strength that we would resist these idols and that we would keep you on the throne. For you are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. And life will only be found when you are in the proper place in our life and we are in our proper place. So Lord, help us. We believe, help our unbelief, Jesus. We need you, and all God's people said,